0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber
1: Searwood Pellet Grill. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away, so it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected.
2: Kronkenstein. Kronkenstein.
1: Is it Rammstein or <laughs>
3: Rammstein? <laughs> I said, three quarters of your body will be splashed. And he says, and what is the allocation of water to those three quarters of my body?
1: And before I was shown this modification, I was losing about 20% of the bites when I fished salt plastics. The follow-up, flaunting and boasting just tells me you actually don't have a brain cell in your
2: head. <laughs> Good morning, degenerate anglers, and welcome to Bend—the podcast that loves two-stroke outboard fumes and the mildewy funk of live wells. I'm Joe Cermelli.
4: I'm Miles Nolte, and and I'm a hundred percent on board with this. I totally <laughs> I agree think with you. Would I would be. <laughs> I, I realize neither of those smells are objectively pleasant. No. But both of them make me very
2: happy. Yeah. Dude, smell memory is a real thing.
4: It know? is. It yeah. is. And and thank you for bringing that up because it lets me say some <laughs> geeky shit I learned recently. The olfactory bulb, which is the part of your brain that senses smell, sends information straight to the hippocampus, the part of your brain that turns information into memory. Smells play a huge role in memory making, especially the long-term memory. So this is weird, but I can actually recall the smells of fishing from 30 mm. years ago. Far mm-hmm. better than... Arguably more important things like family members' birthdays, which I'm terrible at remembering. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that is, but it's the smell thing. I'm, I can't smell birthdays; I can smell outboard VMs.
2: <laughs> Dude, no, I, I'm with you. And here's here's mine. Right, my dad's old Plano tackle boxes, which as a kid, like I, I'd sneakily root around in all the time while he was uh-huh. working. Shit, yeah. had this weird oh, man. It was almost like this fresh mulch. Slash sour milk smell. Do you know what I'm talking about? I
4: I wouldn't have described it that way, but yes, I think I know what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, like I've I've smelled it many times in many other tackle boxes over the years, and it usually happens. I guess when like wet lures are put away, or and and then that box isn't opened again for a very long time. I yep. Someone once told me it has something to do with gases given off by the plastic lures getting trapped in the box. But that could be totally inaccurate. I, I don't really know the cause, but it's no. a vivid smell. It's a vivid smell.
4: I don't think it's it's rust. I would buy the plastic no. over the rust. And like to me, there's also this undercurrent of of like power bait funk somewhere in there, because there was <laughs> yeah. always an errant piece of power bait that got stuck someplace in the box and and left alone. Y- I-
2: yes. But, but what I will say though, it's like this is pre-power bait. So like, right. This is like my dad's box is going back to the early '80s before all that. Yeah. So it's just like plugs and a couple bags of plastic worms.
4: No, you're absolutely right. Pre-power bait, <laughs> it still had that very specific. Yeah. I don't know what that smell comes from, but I know, I know the smell of an old tackle box being opened that resonates with me, and I appreciate the fact that we we share these things in common. And I'm gonna I'm gonna push a little further, I'm gonna, just to see if we have something else in common. I'm, I'm going to ask you a stupid question, and I realize before you even jump on me, I realize it's a stupid <laughs> question because it doesn't have a a, a definite answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I think it's just something that we need to talk about. I'm just curious to get your perspective. Do you consider fishing to be more art or science?
2: Oh, God, that, that could not be more loaded. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I know I... I, I think I know where you're going with this, but b- before we go off on whatever tangent you have in mind, just brief brief pause to remind everyone that this podcast is geared up by 13 Fishing. Oh, right.
4: Yes, that it is. Uh, and and I can honestly say that 13 Fishing does a nice job of combining art and science into fishing mm-hmm. gear, because it's both effective and works on the water, does what it's got to do, and it's nice looking. It's
2: aesthetically pleasing gear. Totally. Totally. This this past shad season, I actually leaned on their Fate Steel line of steelhead rods hard during the shad run out here, and shad turn fast like Steely, so that extra length and softness uh, combats these maneuvers nicely.
4: Yeah, you also got the extra length to work through the seams and and have a little bit more ability to move that line in the river. They were they're an excellent choice. Those do make very fine river steelheading rods, I can say. But I actually got to shad fish with you this season for the first you did. time. They did. They worked beautifully. It was great. Those fish, dude. Those fish pull. I was I was impressed.
2: I yeah, was duly well, impressed. So, <laughs> we won't give we won't give too much away. Okay, but just strong chance Miles was here to shoot an episode of B Side Fishing with me for season two and taste those shad <laughs> that he once claimed on this very show were delicious with no personal
4: experience at all.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what was the verdict? You will you will have to wait and see.
4: Oh, so much I want to say here, but I'm not going to give anything away. You will all just have to go and watch that episode when it comes yeah. out.
2: Oh yeah, all will be revealed there. Anyway, we got sidetracked. So you asked me if I consider fishing more art or science, which mm-hmm. is, as you said yourself, kind of a stupid question because it's both. So where are we going? Like, what are all we right. really trying to get at here?
4: That's that's fair. I I, I left it open ended because I was I was hoping you'd just kind of pick up the ball and. And roll with it, and start <laughs> saying some things. But I'm, I'm really curious to know, like where you land in the spectrum of intuitive versus pattern based fishing, right? I think mm-hmm. I think that's really the more specifically what I'm trying to get at. I will, I admit that that for myself, I'm more of a, a science guy kind of when it comes to how I approach fishing. The like guy, yeah, this is true. You know this. I have spreadsheets from every season mm-hmm. that I guided logging mm-hmm. all kinds of different data, you know, weather, water temperature, angler skill, what we fish, what worked, what didn't, how the bite changed throughout the day. And I, I still use that information. Like if I'm, if I'm going to go fishing on Saturday, I'll go back through uh, all those logs and I'll look at them and, and think, all right, what's the water temperature? What's the weather? and i'll i'll try and use those previous experiences that i documented to help decide where i'm going to go and what i'm going to use
2: sure sure and i appreciate that and and i, I cuz i've had so many false starts with journals it's not even funny right but i guess the way i'd sum it up is fishing to me is more art but you can't like reach da vinci status without the science or some level of nice. science like they, that's a they good analogy th- they have to go hand in hand. Like I, I know a lot of guys that just seem to have the touch, you know yeah. what I mean, the knack. Yeah. They're just fishier, and none of them are keeping detailed logs. They just know how to work this lure or that fly a certain way in this scenario, but none of that matters if you don't have some understanding of the science behind your target, and I I, don't know, I put myself into this category, I guess. Like I consider weather and temps and all that, but usually when I pick a lure or fly, it just feels right. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But I I tend to lean on my gut more than data. I want
4: if I'm be honest, I've never been one of those guys that's just like inherently fishy, you know. Mm. Like I'm I'm I consider myself a very good angler. I've, I've fished a lot, but I'm not one of those people that just like oh it just it just comes to me. Yeah. And I know and there's no right or
2: wrong. Like you're, you're, you're in good standing either way. Like I'm not making fun of that.
4: No, know? no, I know. I know. But it's, it, it's, it's a really, it's a real thing within the fishing community. There are those people and I'm not going to lie. I, I, a part of me kind of hates them that they just, they have this weird sixth sense where they're like, Oh, I'm going to use this and it's going to work. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why did that work? And, <laughs> and I've always wanted to be more that way. I wish I had more confidence in my intuition. It's not like I'm afraid to change up my program in the middle of a fission trip, it's not working. It's not like I'm stuck on whatever preconceived idea I started with, but I usually do that based on something that I see, like some Mm -hmm. evidence that, that the bite might be shifting uh, or, or, or something that's going on that keys me in. Like, maybe I should try this, but it's always based on, on theory and conjecture. I'm just not one of those people that has some random harebrained idea popping in, in my head out of nowhere. And then, and then that works. Seems, every time I, I, I try and make that happen, like I'm like, well, today I'm going to be doing something that doesn't seem to make sense because it, it works for everybody else. That does, I just get blanked and then yeah. I'm frustrated and then I go back to what I think based on evidence, what I think should be working.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And in fairness, I end up there a lot too, but I find it more satisfying when the wild card produces. Yeah. You know what I mean, especially like on a really tough, shitty day. <laughs> and when it happens, I suddenly could care less why. You know what I yeah. mean? Like in, in the yeah. spring, as an example, like when the water is still cold, like I know I should be fishing a jerkbait for smallies. Mm-hmm. But in times of desperation, when when everything that should isn't, isn't producing anything, like I've thrown on a jitterbug and just been like, I don't know, why not? Nothing else has worked. And then like it gets trashed. And with stuff like that, I feel like I'm not going to figure out why, and it may never happen again. So just enjoy it. Like don't analyze it. No, I don't know I, why it happened.
4: I agree. I agree. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I wish I had that. Well, I'm just going to throw in the jitterbug. I've tried the, the jitterbug analogy, and I end up being like, well, that didn't work either. That was stupid. And, and, it, and that's It usually thing. doesn't,
2: but every once in a while, it's like, this water's 32 degrees, and he just came <laughs> up and smoked that. That's nothing ever written in history about fishing that says that should have happened. You and, and your point is good,
4: because you have to try those ideas for them to ever work. If you don't try sure. them, and you don't try them with confidence- they never yep. work. And that is where I struggle. And for example, my father was the opposite of me. He was mm-hmm. 100% completely intuitive in the way that he approached fishing. That dude never read a fishing magazine or a book
2: right. or a website right.
4: in his life. <laughs> Whatever decisions he made about what to fish or how to fish or where to cat any fishing decision he ever made was never cluttered with any, you know, like what you're supposed yeah. to do interference. Yeah. Yeah. He just didn't have any of that. He wasn't knowledgeable in the classic sense. And he wasn't actually a very good angler, but he caught <laughs> bigger fish than me mm-hmm. almost all the time. And yeah. I, to be, to be, I just want to tell everybody, I'm not saying anything that I wouldn't have and didn't say to his face. Like right. if he were here right now, I would, I would say like, dad, by the time I was 10, I was a far better fisherman than you, but <laughs> Like, the fact that I was more skillful and informed didn't matter. He still caught the biggest fish, and it drove me nuts.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been a better angler uh, than my dad since I was born, I think. And he'll call (laughs) me as soon as he hears this. Like, as soon as he hears this. Um, You know. And he lit the fire, no doubt. He nurtured the flame, but then I used that flame to burn the city down, and he was like, I can't keep up with this fire. (laughs) It's just too much fire. Oh, the fire's real. But that's another story for later. Anyway, we're going to start things off today with the smooth moves about an unnamed famous person whose approach to fishing would most definitely skew towards the scientific approach.
0: Why did you do that? Why?
1: Why did you do that, Terry? Oh, my
4: God. It is time again for smooth moves. You know, the part of the show where we call up people who – Make their money taking other people fishing, and we get them to tell the stories of some of the most ridiculous things they've ever seen while fishing with clients. Joining us today, our good, good friend Hillary Hutchison. Hillary, how's it going?
3: Hey, how's it going? Good. It's all about the stories.
4: <laughs> it is. And and in that spirit, like the, the the purpose of this segment is to bring everyone out there into that guide shack for a little yes. bit of those those complaining sessions. All right. So Hillary, with with that tee up. What, what did you bring for us today?
3: <laughs> well, uh, so many of us who guide in Montana end up taking celebrities. Um, you know, you get anything from like a pro football coach to an actress to, you know, whatever. At, at some level, it's going to be somebody who has all of the money and all of the fame and fortune and all of the power. It's like a space-time continuum vortex of weirdness. And um, <laughs> that, that was this particular day. And uh, it kind of starts what, by, they, they're so famous that we had three boats of security with this person. I'm not mentioning this person's name, but he was late and um, at the last second decided to switch from a fly fishing trip to a whitewater rafting trip. And um, so, like I said, they're late, real late. It was like 7 p.m. Uh, in July. We're supposed to put on at like 4 or 5. And, Ooh, um, wow. Yeah, so the first thing I say, because I've got some snacks, we're all waiting at the put-in, and so I've got some snacks, and so I say to, you know, super famous, rich, powerful portion, are you hungry? And he is terror-stricken in his face, like he goes white, like he's not sure, and he looks at one of his handlers, and he says, am I hungry?
4: Oh my (laughs) gosh! And
3: they say, no, and he looks at me, he goes, oh yeah, we just ate, that's why we're late. (laughs) That's right, (laughs) of course, of course it is, so... So then um, we start walking down to the raft and we go to to get in and I kind of say, "Okay, like, kind of watch your step, get in here. And he says, now, will I be splashed on this trip? And I said, (laughs) well, yeah, it's so hopefully they've told you it's a whitewater rafting trip. So you're going to be splashed. And he says. Well what proportions of my body will be splashed? <laughs> okay
2: I, I gotta cut in because we're I, I so badly want all you people to know who we're talking about but <laughs> we know. promise not to do that. but this is just reaffirming that this person as far as I'm concerned, is actually a robot, not human <laughs> he is a cyborg
3: but also <laughs> if that remarkable. Helps you. but also let's keep in mind like you don't get to the level that he's at without being some sort of superhuman so there you go <laughs> um, and he says, what proportions of my body will be splashed. And I don't know why, how or why, I just like kept cool with that. But I said, three quarters of your body will be splashed. And he says, and what is the allocation of water to those three quarters of no.
2: my
3: body? No. <laughs> <Yes>. What? <laughs> so I said, I said, I believe you will be evenly splashed along the left side of your body since you're on the front left side. And I feel that you will be periodically splashed um, on the right-hand side of your body. And he nods like that's a normal thing to put in the
1: brochure. <laughs> you know, like
3: that's totally normal. So we get on the boat and we go, he's a he's, um, great listener, like really like trying super hard at the paddling, like very much present and kind of there and is looking around at the beautiful surroundings here that we have in the crown of the continent. And so he says, this is nice. And I say, well, Isn't it amazing? I say, this is yours. This is your public lands. And I, at this point, see this opportunity because this is the kind of person who we want to understand that this is our shared environment. These are our public lands. Here we are, two and a half million acres of wilderness um, between the Bob Marshall Wilderness and the Great Bear Wilderness, Scapegoat Wilderness and Glacier National Park. Here we are. And I tell him, this is your land. This is your land. And he sits up straight and looks over to one of the boats of his security and handlers and says, do I own this? <laughs> and,
1: oh,
3: and, oh, oh. and I'm thinking, oh, goodness. I think he thinks he, he personally owns, owns it because I just told him this. This is your land. You own this. I told him that. You, this is yours. And he says, is this mine? And he asks them, <laughs> is this mine? And I say, so, well, and they say, and they're they're looking at each other like, I don't know, maybe it is. We'll maybe, check.
2: We'll find out right yeah, away, sir. Yeah. Maybe we yeah. bought
3: this. I'm not sure. And so I have to clarify. And we have a, a public lands lesson, and we talk about this, you know. The, and I kind of even get into the, this is this is Native American land, like, and what I mean, this is like history lesson. Like, yeah. We get super super deep in it, and it was remarkable to see somebody learn about their public lands like that. And he listened. It was remarkable that he listened. He listened and I could tell he was like putting it somewhere. I don't know exactly where or if there's room up there for it, but it seemed that he was kind of filing it away, um, which I really appreciated. Um, and then I'll end by telling you that one of our other guides had an internship at NASA, his lifelong goal. He's this young kid, super young kid internship at NASA. And, uh, famous, powerful person said, well, I don't know. You can't, you shouldn't go work in the government. You got to work for, for private sector. You got to work for the private sector. It got so tense that I said, oh, Kaden, this guy, and I'm like, oh buddy, no, don't worry. No matter like how rich and famous and powerful you get, all roads lead back to Glacier. You could just end up being a fishing bomb for the rest of your life. And rich, famous, powerful person looks at him and says, Caden, don't listen to her. That's just her. You can be whatever you want to be if you put your mind to it.
2: I'm sorry, but, it, it, but to me, it, it feels mean that we're not telling people who that was about. No,
4: we we promised. I, I know. We are, we are beholden, sworn not to reveal the identity. And the, the person in question here could crush us. Like he could erase us from the planet with one keystroke. So we're, we're not yes. taking that chance.
2: Yeah, I know. I know. You're right. Uh, we'll drop it. Uh, I got to say, though, while I love that story, and I found it a fascinating portrait of a person whose brain just works differently than my own, it wasn't really a fishing story. Like, he did not never really go fishing.
4: That's true. That's true. He was supposed to, but yeah. he changed it up. But Hillary is a fishing guide, and that's mm-hmm. the purpose of that segment. So I think it still fits, kind of like the book that I'm about to describe this week.
2: right. That's right. You've got a freaking Philistine segment this week where you're going to uh, try and convince all of us to read a book that has nothing to do with fishing at all. Good luck with that.
1: What's a Philistine?
0: It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things.
1: The long Philistine.
0: Quick disclaimer.
4: Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller is not a book about fishing. But it is about fish. Kinda. It's also about the desperate impulse to identify patterns and impose order on the world around us. Our collective need to construct a coherent framework on the human experience so that we can feel some sense of comfort and control. Anglers, like scientists, don't just want to know that something works. We want to know why. We need narratives based on our experience to explain natural phenomena and resist chaos. Anglers, in my experience, detest chaos. And in that way, at least, Lulu Miller is one of us. Miller's first page states, quote, It's not if, it's when. Chaos is the only sure thing in this world, the master that rules us all. My scientist father taught me early on that there is no escaping the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy is only growing. It can never be diminished, no matter what we do. Miller goes on to explain she was indoctrinated into this truth at the age of seven Standing on a picturesque seaside dock during a family vacation, she asked her father the meaning of life. He responded, Nothing. Chaos, he informed her, was our only ruler. This massive swirl of dumb forces was what made us, accidentally, and would destroy us imminently. As special as you might feel, he told his young daughter, you are no different than an ant. A bit bigger, maybe, but no more significant. Miller describes her father as, quote, A lively man who studies ions, the particles that carry the electricity that powers all life, heartbeat, lightning, even thought itself. He doesn't use seatbelts or return addresses, drinks copious amounts of beer, and enters the water whenever possible with the belliest of flops. He seems to permit himself just one lie to constrain his otherwise voracious hedonism to form a kind of moral code. While other people don't matter either, treat them like they do. What could be a grim reality has instead pumped his life full of vigor, has made him live big and good. But that vacuous truth affected Miller differently than her father. For a smart child with an overactive mind who might skew toward narcissism, the terrifying truth of her own insignificance landed heavily. And its ripples sculpted the trajectory of her life. This book traces the peaks and troughs of those ripples and the unexpected people, discoveries, tragedies, and joys to which their nihilistic force pushes the author. One of her primary discoveries is a man named David Starr Jordan. Jordan was, arguably, the most important ichthyologist of all time. He and his crew discovered, named, and classified more fish species than anyone else in history. He was the founding president of Stanford University. He was also a staunch and outspoken pacifist at a time when that wasn't really a thing and a leading American proponent of the eugenics movement, but we'll get into that later. Miller was attracted to Jordan because, as she says, "quote, it was his day job to fight chaos. He was a taxonomist, the kind of scientist charged with bringing order to the chaos of the earth by uncovering the shape of the Great Tree of Life. His specialty was fish, and he spent his days sailing the globe in search of new species. He and his crew would eventually discover a full fifth of the fish known to man in his day. By the thousand, he reeled in new species, dreaming up names for them, punching those names into shiny tin tags. In Jordan, Miller hoped to discover the secret to finding peace in a world ruled by chaos. So she embarked on her own journey, only instead of discovering and cataloging the world's fish, she set out to learn everything she could about the man. Along the way, Miller's fascination and faith in Jordan becomes nearly tidal, sometimes flooding inland, other times receding to bare mud, like when she discovers his role in the American eugenics movement. Without getting too far afield here, eugenics was a fringe belief coined in the late 19th century by a British scientist who theorized that the forces of evolution could be manipulated to select for a master race of humans by breeding out traits he incorrectly believed to be associated with blood, poverty, criminality, illiteracy, feeble-mindedness, promiscuity, and, and more. This grossly misguided concept gained traction in some circles of biological study and was one of the primary justifications for the Holocaust, as well as lots of other terrible atrocities. Point being, Jordan's association with this movement tarnished some of his shine in Miller's eyes. Worst of all, Jordan suffered no repercussions for his vociferous championing of racist pseudoscience during his lifetime. He got off scot-free. The legacy of his life's work, cataloging so many of the world's fishes, however, was not so lucky. I'll let Miller take it from here on out. What David Starr Jordan set in motion by practicing the art of taxonomy, by following Darwin's advice to sort creatures by evolutionary closeness, led to a fateful discovery. In the 1980s, taxonomists realized that fish, as a legitimate category of creature, do not exist. Birds exist, mammals exist, amphibians exist, but fish, in particular, do not exist. Down in the water beneath their costumes of scales exist all kinds of creatures. There are sarcopterygii, the lungfish and the coelacanths, our evolutionary cousins in a sense, mermaids with lungs on top, tails down low. Then across some huge evolutionary divide are the actinoterygii: salmon, bass, trout, eels, gar. Though they appear like twins of the sarcopterygii. Slimy and scaly and fishy as can be, on the inside, they're a world apart. Then you've got the sharks and rays, the chondrichthys, as they are called, a puzzling group. In their smooth skin and voluptuous bodies, I always thought I recognized a closeness to mammals. But it turns out they're even further from us than the scaly trout and eels, much older evolutionarily. The category fish hides all of this, hides nuance, discounts intelligence. It gerrymanders close cousins away from us, creating a false sense of separation to preserve our spot at the top of an imaginary ladder.
2: Dude, quit f***ing with my head and everybody else's head. If fish don't exist, then like what the hell have I been out catching lately? If there are no fish, how can there be fishing?
4: Were were you listening, Joe? Did you listen to anything that I just said? Mostly.
2: Yes. Mostly.
4: Yes, (laughs) there. You're right. There are creatures that live in water and we catch them and call them fish. I'm not, no one, in fact, is arguing the physical existence of bass or stripers, (laughs) but the concept of fish, the way we look at fish as one singular and related type of life. Is not supported by scientific evidence. It's. I get it. It's a mind bender, and it poses some semantic problems for the term fishing. But that's not really the point. The point is that book changed the way that I think about fish, and and also eugenics.
2: Yeah, I I don't know, man. I I prefer to keep eugenics out of my fishing. Uh, yeah. But hopefully, one of us found a story this week that can change the way our listeners think about fish. Which means it's time for fish news.
0: News. That escalated quickly.
2: Hey, so before we dive headlong into those current events, here's an important message in case you missed it in uh, my social media or meet eater's social media this week. The final episode of season one of B-Side Fishing dropped this week and it's sort of a, I will call it like a wrap party bonus, we're yeah. giving one lucky winner Every single 13 fishing rod and reel that you saw me use in season one of B-Side.
4: That is
2: correct. Yes.
4: But uh, I want to clear, I got I to clear one point up there. It's Don't think Joe's going to just jam like a box <laughs> good, full of the actual beat up gear point. that he's destroyed <laughs> and mail it to your house. Good point. We're, we're, we're kind of low rent on this show, but we're not that low rent. No, you're actually going to be getting like brand new. Never used versions of all the rods and reels that were featured on camera, but it's new stuff, not destroyed stuff.
2: Indeed. Indeed. And all total. Right. That's about eleven hundred smackers, eleven hundred clams worth of tackle in one shot. Now, in that mix will be their heaviest omen green and prototype TX saltwater spinning rod and reel, which I used to smash those Mahis in episode one. Uh, you're going to get an omen black spinning rod and a smaller prototype X. I use those to chase Pickerel. And a Frankenstein baitcaster match with a big old mm. concept A3 low profile reel. That's I think what it's, you're getting here. I think it's Krankenstein. Kronkenstein. Kronkenstein. Kronkenstein? <laughs> Is it Rammstein or <laughs> Rammstein? Yeah. Uh,
4: that, that's, uh, that one's, that's the one. The Kronkenstein was yeah. what you used uh, in the final episode to hammer on the ugly yeah. but delicious tog, right?
2: Yes, it was. and it was it was actually a really perfect outfit for for light tackle togging because I was using jigs and it it paired very well with tog jigs. however, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say whoever wins that, <laughs> strong chance they're not gonna be using it for tog. Just maybe you never know, but I doubt it, and that's okay because really what that outfit is is uh, is killer for is, is swim baiting. Right, it's a mm-hmm. great swim bait rod and a heavy crank baiting outfit. Mm-hmm. Uh, great for bass. I plan to use mine for snakehead frogging, and you could probably hurt you know some pike or salmon with it too. It's it's a really good combo.
4: I I used it for for pike actually yes. for swim baits yeah. and crankbaits for pike. So I, I, I can vouch for that. The question now, of course, is how do you win this glorious package of rods and reels? It's good, it's a good question. Yes. You know, head on over to the meat eater.com slash fish and look for the pop-up to enter and, uh, and be quick about it. Cause you only have till May 11th. That's right. Time runs out. Best of luck. I, I hope you win. and And that's, I'm talking about the royal you, the editorial <laughs> you. I just, I just want a bent listener to win, but Me too. That, that's that's what I want. But in the meantime, uh, let's move on. Let's see who wins fish news.
2: Yes, let's. And remember, this is a fierce competition. Miles and I do not know which stories the other guy is bringing to the table. At the end, our audio engineer uh, Phil will pick a winner, assuming he's not out fly fishing for basking sharks in Guam. I know he <laughs> takes one week a year off to do that. Uh, anyway, it is your lead off, my friend. Uh, get get us rolling here. All right. I'm going to start with a story that's still
4: developing, but uh, we got to cover it because it could impact one of the most popular fisheries in North America. Uh-oh. It appears that the walleye population in Lake of the Woods may be in trouble. Mm. Earlier this week, the Canadian Broadcasting Company published an article reporting that the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry is concerned about the number of walleye they're finding in spring netting and creel surveys on on the big lake. The potential bombshell in this, however, is MNRF's claim that recreational harvest on Lake of the Woods is above the level of sustainability. The ministry does note that commercial and subsistence harvests are also allowed on the lake. According to the CBC, MNRF is currently working with the Lake of the Woods Fisheries Advisory Council to develop a new recreational walleye management plan. The details of that plan have not been released, but could include altering bag and slot limits and changing the walleye season. The group is hoping to have new regulations in effect for January 1st of next year. So that's what I found reported on the CBC, which is a source that I know and and can kind of vouch for. But an an article in the local Ontario newspaper, the Kenora Miner, goes a little further. According to the Miner, Lake of the Woods is the most at-risk inland fishery in Ontario, both in terms of likelihood of collapse and the resulting socioeconomic impact if the fishery does collapse. The miner quotes MNRF as saying that the walleye population is approximately half of what is needed to sustainably support current levels of harvest. And that's a huge fish deficit. If you're familiar with Lake of the Woods, you 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 get why this is a big deal, right? Lake of the Woods is one of the premier walleye fishing lakes in the world,
2: and and it ain't small. It's a big body of water,
4: yeah. Uh, And and people in the Upper Midwest are kind of insane when it comes to walleye. Lake of the Woods is super unique. It it straddles the U.S. Canada border and a provincial border in Canada, so it's jointly managed by fisheries departments in Minnesota, Manitoba, and Ontario. Manning any world-class and extremely popular recreational harvest fishery is complicated and difficult, but trying to juggle that management between three different agencies makes the task even more complex. So far, Ontario is the only one of the three to publicly address this issue, despite the fact that they're all you know, theoretically dealing with the same population of fish. In fact, Minnesota's DNR reports that the walleye population is just slightly below average, and and that's the, an average oh, day back to 1981.
2: I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do a quick foreshadowing. We did not cross over on stories, but uh-huh. we came close. And my story, it's we're go- we're gonna we're gonna talk some walleyes today. Go on, this is so great. much walleye today. It's it's yeah. it's the it's the walleye time of year.
4: Uh, so the Minnesota DNR site. High harvest levels the past two years and weak recruitment from 2015 through 2017 is factors for slightly lower levels of harvestable size walleye. But nothing reported by the Minnesota side comes close to the dire predictions from their counterparts uh, on the northern border of the lake. Now, this is all concerning from a fishery perspective, just for those of us who care about fish. But the real challenge here will be the economic variables. Walleye fishing on Lake of the Woods is like it's it's hard to overstate how popular it is. And ice fishing in particular yeah. is is like it's one of the places it's, to go. And it money. gets more yeah. popular yeah. every year. Yep. On the Minnesota side alone, recreational anglers harvested over a half million pounds of walleye in twenty nineteen in about three and a half million hours of fishing. Though the numbers for 2020 aren't out yet, they're predicted to be significantly higher as more and more people got out fishing last year for the COVID thing. Though I couldn't find comprehensive figures for the economic value of of Lake of the Woods fishing, Ontario estimates that the province brings in $112 million from anglers, and I think it's safe to assume that Minnesota's numbers are comparable. Changes... In management could help maintain that walleye population, but would most certainly hurt fishing-related businesses, which, at least on the Canadian side, have already taken a major hit from the travel restrictions. Things get even more sticky if regulations get tighter in Canadian waters, but not on the U.S. side, where anglers mm-hmm. are currently allowed four walleye per day. Mm-hmm. Now, Minnesota has historically shown a willingness to tighten restrictions when walleye populations struggle. The famed Mille Lacs, once the premier walleye harvest fishery in the state now has strict regulations and harvest caps allowing anglers just one fish per day in a very narrow slot and, and they close down all walleye harvest once a predetermined threshold is reached, which sometimes happens even before open water fishing begins. Though Minnesota DNR has imposed these kinds of draconian restrictions in the past, they might be wary of doing it again. Aggressive management on Mille has maintained the trophy walleye fishery, but the, the limited ability to keep fish drove many walleye anglers elsewhere and has harmed local businesses. And the result of that has been a whole lot of anger and frustration aimed at the DNR. So this is one of those stories we're going to keep an eye on. It's it's yeah. almost impossible to overstate Minnesotans' passion for catching and eating walleye. I, I, I cannot express what a big deal that is. And to be fair, it's not just Minnesota, but like all over the upper Midwest and parts of Canada. It's like a religion out there. Yes. I personally don't get it. I don't I've get the this religion, before. but. I'll say it again. <laughs> I don't understand the walleye obsession. Walleye, walleye fishing usually, it's usually trolling or jigging. Not always, yeah. but usually trolling or jigging. And I consider those to be some of the most boring ways that you can fish. Uh, walleye, like they don't bite that well. It's usually like a timid bite. And they don't fight. They
2: don't fight.
4: I, I, it's, a, it's a dish I, rag. They don't I, fight. I, I would fish smallmouth over walleye every single a thousand time. million D percent every time. And finally, I'm going to say one more thing here, and this is what's going to get me some hate mail. Walleye are not as good to eat as people make them out to be.
2: Ooh, once you Miles get rid said of that. the bones, Miles said that. Miles once said you get that. Rid of the Joe bones, didn't say that.
4: Pike <laughs> taste just as good as walleye, and perch are better. There. I said it. That's what I think. But I'm alone in this I'm, I'm I'm in a small minority and I get how important these fish are.
2: Okay. Well, so I'm gonna we're gonna reserve banter because I am not kidding you, man. Like for a second I thought we crossed over, but we didn't. But my first story is gonna go, it's just hand in glove with this. Like it's almost like a continuation of this. <laughs> um, and I'll just kick back and 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 remind everybody we recently had Jay Siemens on the show. Uh, for Smooth Moves. And, uh, you know, Jay lives in Ontario. And during that conversation, we also touched on our lack of ability right now as U.S. residents to visit Canada to go fish due to COVID. Um, And matter of fact, the province of Ontario where Jay lives just recently got thrown into a very, very strict lockdown because it seems the COVIDs are flaring like a pack of hemorrhoids up there. And not only are Americans still not allowed to visit, you can't even cross province borders within Canada right now. So if you live in Quebec, right. you can't right. go to Ontario. Um, and we've, we've certainly touched on how these restrictions are hurting Canadian fishing operations, but what I've never considered was the impact this border closure could have on U.S. fisheries, not until I found this story on the website of Minnesota's Twin Cities Pioneer Press. Now, you just talked about Lake of the Woods. Its neighbor, like they're practically touching, is Lake Vermilion, Okay. Way, way up at the tippity top of Minnesota, uh, real close to the border. Um, And according to this story, all the folks, and there are lots and lots of them, that made an annual trek to Canada to fish are trying to maintain that Northwoods experience despite those border closures and inability to visit their you know, favorite Canadian lodge. So what's the next best thing? Fishing and staying at U.S. lakes that are as far north and close to the border as possible, right? So the lodges and motels and such around Lake Vermillion have seen such an uptick in visitors since the pandemic started that people in the community are genuinely concerned that that lake is going to get overfished in 2021, particularly the walleyes, Because like we just talked about, that tends to be the draw. That's what people hop the border for, fill those coolers, right? But with the border closed, now the pressure is not being evenly distributed throughout all these different lakes people would travel to. And keep in mind, this, this is just about Vermilion. You just talked about Lake of the Woods. I'm sure this is happening in other lakes across the country, right? I'm sure it is. Yeah. So the current walleye limit uh, at Vermilion is four walleyes under 20 inches and one over 26 inches per day. Those are the state regs. And it doesn't appear that uh, Minnesota's Department of Natural Resources is going to change that. And I have a better perspective on that now because you mentioned that they were with, with Malax. They were sort of like, "Ooh, man, maybe we shouldn't have done that." Like, like there's some hesitancy. there. I
4: mean, it, it, it's a that's a whole we could do a whole fish news on that man. It's a, exactly. it is a, a deep dark tale. But there are some pissed off people.
2: Right, right. It's it's very twisted. But but right now, um, DNR is not not looking to change that. But the Vermilion Lake Association is stepping up to thwart possible long-term impacts, and they've created a coalition of fishing guides, resort owners, local businesses, and even the local Ojibwe tribe to ask anglers to keep only two walleyes per day instead of the legal limit of four. Now, this is voluntary, of course, right? Right. Um, they're, They're trying to convince anglers to keep only two walleyes between 12 and 18 inches, no trophies, five crappies instead of the legal 10, and also not to keep any bass or muskies at all. And the Lake Association it has been passing out hundreds of laminated cards all over the area, hoping it will get anglers to adopt these voluntary bag limits. Now, again, tying back to your story, man, this could be a hard road for multiple reasons. One being that the high walleye bag limits have been touted for years by these resorts and businesses. People want to go there because they can keep a lot of walleyes. Yep. So this was a, a huge selling point, point. and it's 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 not easy to change minds. But again, to go back to Minnesota DNR, right? They're not really fully on the side of this coalition. And here's a quote from the story. Edie Everts, Tower Area Fisheries Supervisor for the Minnesota DNR, said the agency supports the effort to release more fish, but she said the lake's walleye population is not in any immediate danger, even with more anglers catching more fish. Test netting in recent years shows the lake's walleye population to be robust, she noted." She says, yes, we're seeing more pressure on Lake Vermilion, but the walleye fishery remains very healthy. We believe it could sustain a higher harvest for a few years without any issues. But we're never going to disagree with someone releasing a fish if they want. So, again, you're saying Ontario looking at Lake of the Woods is like, whoa, 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 big problem here. It's Minnesota going, I don't really think it's that big We don't see a problem. So... They're saying the same thing on Vermilion, which is like the next door neighbor of Lake of the Woods, right? So, I mean, it's a great experiment in terms of of self-regulation, you know, and the way I see it, I'm sure you too. Cutting back a bit until things on the COVID front and the visitors normalize even more, it's not going to hurt. Certainly can't hurt anything. But I mean, I hate to say it. I don't, I don't put that much faith in tourist anglers. I just don't, I see this here with stripers, you know, like these guys complain, we need to protect them. We need to protect them. But then they take their boat's limit because it's like, well, this is my one trip a year. Like, yeah, we right. should protect these, but like, but I'm just coming out twice a year. Like I'm not, I'm, I mean, it's it's it's
4: the same thing as that is like, well, no, no, we got to, we got to come up with good management solutions, but not, not near me. So don't. Don't make it affect me in my experience.
2: Exactly. Exactly. You know, so um, I'm glad you you did that story because I meant listening to that. It's like, man, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of interesting connections here going on between these two. You got one that they're saying, you know, whistleblowing, saying the walleyes are like really, really down. And then you've got concerned citizens saying, we don't want our walleyes to be down. And DNR going, no, 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 they're fine. You could totally whack them for a few more years. It won't matter.
4: So, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a little story, a quick story here. Yeah, that maybe we'll it won't solve this problem, but but just, just <laughs> something to, for people to chew on to follow up on my claim about uh, the palatability of walleyes. So when we were filming uh, last season of DOS Boat, we went up to Red Lake, which is another very famous Minnesota walleye fishery, and we mm-hmm. targeted eater size, meaning smaller sized uh, freshwater drum. Right, right. And sure. all the local walleye anglers were like, those things are gross. They're slimy bastards. That's where we got the title for that episode, slimy bastards, mm-hmm. because literally that's what they call them. So this didn't make the episode because we just did it kind of on our own, but we had our, our our resident culinary expert, Danielle Pruitt, fry up a chunk of walleye, a chunk of crappie, and a chunk of freshwater drum, seasoned and cooked exactly the same, and I did a blind mm. taste test with three local hardcore walleye guys who were convinced they hated drum. They all, in a blind taste test, picked drum as their favorite of the three,
2: crappie second, no and walleye third. Way
4: swear to God that happened.
2: And did they all so, assume that their favorite was the walleye? Of course they did. Wow. So I'm,
4: I'm I'm saying this is a small again small sample, not a lot of evidence, but there is. I have some evidence to suggest that the love for walleye is as much cultural and nostalgic yeah. as it is yeah. actual.
2: Yeah, fair. Fair. So there you go. A lot lot of walleye talk this week.
0: There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't, because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, n- Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years when used. The carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in, you crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? the crickets so head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth i'm gonna hit some walleye here
4: again Ah, Uh, bring it on more walleyes we're we're gonna we're gonna talk wise that's not all i'm gonna talk about i i don't know what's going on uh maybe it's like we've been talking about this combination of more people getting out fishing and and the fact that unlike well, we were saying some some fisheries are in really good shape right now, but there are a lot of state records getting broken this spring, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and like so many that I just I really took note. So I'm going to do a quick big fish rundown because Ooh, a records
2: records montage.
4: Uh, yeah, a records montage because I like you it. know there there are a lot of them, and, and who doesn't want to talk about big fish? <laughs> so first, again, sticking with walleye, North Dakota has a new state record, and I'm going to butcher some words in this one, so just. Everybody deal with it. Jared Shipkowski, he's not Polish, landed a 33 inch, 16 pound, six ounce walleye. He just spit out his walleye. pierogi.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> he landed a 33 inch, 16 pound, six ounce walleye trolling crankbaits on a Missouri River reservoir called Lake Oahi I think it's a hell of a fish, but Shipkowski didn't break some long-standing record because the previous record got set just three years ago. In fact. The Missouri River system, unlike Lake of the Woods, seems to be producing an incredibly healthy walleye population these days. Mm. Before 2018, the state high mark for walleye had stood since 1959. But in the past four years, at least six fish over 15 pounds have been caught. So the state went 60 years without seeing a 15-pounder. And now they're coming at least one every single year, and that to me yeah. is a sign of of super successful management. So, uh, if you completely disagree with me and and you love walleye, maybe go to North Dakota instead of Lake of the Woods. Just a thought.
2: Oh, there you go.
4: Next, we're gonna we're gonna cross one border to the west into my home state of Montana. Montana's not really known for largemouth bass.
2: Oh, I saw this. I was thinking, man, they have them there.
4: Uh, we're, we're more of a cold water fishery destination, but Brandon Wright set a new state record this month with a 22 and a half inch, nine and a half pound largy from a treasure state Lake. I realize a fish that size is like standard for warmer parts of the country, but that's a freakishly nine pounds? big. That's nine a freakishly pounds? big Northern largemouth.
2: That's huge. Yeah, I was gonna say, no, you are wrong about that, dude. Nine's big. I don't care where I you know. are. I
4: know, but I mean if you're in Florida, like it's big, but it's not it's not newsworthy. It's just big. Well,
2: no, but
4: and, and like to give you guys a sense of how rare largemouth fishing is out here, that was the first largemouth bass Wright had ever caught in his life. <laughs> <laughs> and he caught it on a worm. So I'm guessing I'm guessing homeboy was targeting walleye like he was just dunking a worm hoping to get some walleye, and he just ran into the state record green bass. Uh, good for moving him. over to Missouri, it's a good year for Gar. Devlin Rich caught a new record spotted Gar weighing in at 10 pounds, 9 ounces back in February. And last month, Anthony Schur set the new benchmark for long-nose Gar in the state at 32 pounds, 10 ounces. And there's a Ooh, there's a so heartwarming angle to this fish. Sure had a good friend pass away recently. And that friend's wife called Sure to break the news and asked him to go out that day and catch a fish in his friend's memory. Sure and his girlfriend were crappie fishing when they saw this monster gar and they actually managed to catch it. He's now going to mount the fish in honor of his deceased fishing buddy, which awesome. That's a, that's awesome. a great story. Yeah. And finally, This one isn't actually a technical state record, but it's a hell of a fish and a good story. A U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service sampling crew caught a 240-pound lake sturgeon that Uh stretched to nearly 7 feet in length and 4 feet in girth. The fish was caught in the Detroit River, a notoriously noxious waterway that still, still somehow maintains a relatively strong annual spawning run of sturgeon. This particular fish is estimated to be over 100 years old, which means it this fish has personally seen the progression of that river from like a relatively pristine waterway to an industrial cesspool to mm-hmm. its more recent rebound in the wake of the Clean Water Act. That fish has seen some shit, yeah, literally, and figured. L- literal
2: human literal shit. Literal and yeah, figured yeah. shit. Yeah.
4: <laughs> also, until reading this story, I didn't realize that the Fish and Wildlife Service sampled sturgeon by catching them on rod and reel. Like, I didn't know that That's how they sample it. Meaning that those fisheries techs literally get paid to go fishing for sturgeon. I'm sure they don't make much,
2: but still, like that's a sweet gig. That's a B side, dude. Detroit River sturgeon. I gotta hook up with them. Yeah. How do I? How do I become a volunteer on that boat, guys? If you're listening, you know where to find us. Um, The the thing I found most impressive to that was I'm sorry to say it, but just the Detroit River part. It's like really, man. Like that's. In, I've seen the Detroit River, and I know it's better than it used to be, but it's like, man, that fish, like you said, has a 100-year-old fish, it has seen the, 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 seen the everything dirtiest of the dirt yeah. in that river. So very impressive. Are, they, are they, Is that all your records? You That's it. Records?
4: Um, that, that, that okay. was it. That was it. I wrapped it up with a sturgeon.
2: Good. Let's jump from fish records to criminal records. How about that? Oh, nice. Banger right nice. there. Right there when you least expect it. Um, I So I actually scrubbed a story I had ready to go to quickly sub this in. And I have listener Justin, it's either dare or dare, I don't know, to thank for it. Um, and a few of you guys actually tipped me off to this last weekend. But Justin was first. So he's, he's getting the shout-out. So I don't know if you saw this, but there is a viral photo making uh, the rounds on social of some clown in Florida bear-hugging a juvenile tiger shark, lifting it out of the water, and uh, the setting appears to be I missed this in, one. Yeah, so the setting appears to be in, in one of Florida's freshwater spring rivers. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, it's very yeah. narrow and yeah, shallow, yeah. crystal clear. Um, and in the background of, of this... Are family swimming and tubing and paddling. Okay, And the kid holding it looks exactly like Jeff Spicoli. And I feel like this is now <laughs> the second or third time I've said someone from a Florida story looks like Jeff Spicoli on Ben. It's irrelevant. Uh, so obviously at first glance, you're wondering did this tiger shark swim up this river where it may have injured these folks recreating, but nay look closely at the dead or very near dead tiger shark. And it's got a rope around its tail. Now, When Justin first sent this, he only had a few social media posts to forward. I think it just happened last Saturday evening. Um, This was in the Chazahawitzka River on Florida's west coast, locally known as the Chaz. And the posts he sent were from onlookers describing the scene. And what they said was a larger boat, which can be seen in other photos that eventually surfaced, motored up the river, dragging this barely alive tiger shark on a rope. And some people, including Spicoli here, jumped at the chance to pose with it, but most people were like kind of pissed off and a little bit horrified and started calling FWC real fast. So what I don't know is exactly how far away these yahoos uh, with the shark had, had to go to bring it to where these photos were taken. But regardless, what I had initially told Justin uh, was to let me know if this becomes sort of real news. Like right now, it's just social media chatter, but perhaps this will develop further. And sure enough, a couple days later, Justin hits me back with a link to Fox News Tampa and it's game on. Okay, so according to the story, witnesses say that they saw this crew of asshats capture the shark. I I don't again, I don't know. Where, who saw them capture it or where, it doesn't say exactly where that was. And then they dragged it to this section of the river with the spring where people swim. And an onlooker quoted in the piece says people were tormenting the shark and using it as a photo prop. And this is directly from the story. Several concerned citizens called the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. It's illegal to harvest tiger sharks in Florida waterways. FWC says it is aware of the incident and is investigating. Then late last Monday, the agency noted it issued two notices to appear to the individuals allegedly involved, though they did not publicly identify them. And another news story that followed up said they're going to be charged with taking a prohibited species out of the water. Uh, and they have court dates per Fox news and will be facing second degree misdemeanors. And really There's not much to say about this other than this is just, like, asshole behavior, right? Like, even if you found the shark dead, which I doubt, it's still a species you can't meddle with, and for the life of me, like, in this day and age, I cannot figure out why people do shit like that, like, knowing it it could end up on the internet, or maybe even in this case, hoping it ends up on the internet, and then you expect absolutely no consequences. And... This isn't the first time that that something like this with sharks has happened. Do you remember there was a video from Florida, oh man, 4 or 5 years ago, dude's dragging a shark backward behind a boat yeah. running it wide open, right? Yeah. Um it made its rounds. It all, yeah. yeah, it was all over the internet, made its rounds, they all got nailed as they should have. Um but I just I just can't get my head around doing these things, videoing it or or taking a shark to a spot loaded with people who all have phones with cameras and just saying, eh, it's all in good fun. This will be fine. Like, the acts alone are one thing, but the follow-up, flaunting and boasting just tells me you actually don't have a brain cell in your head. Uh, so, yeah. you know. I, I mean, I,
4: look, there's not much to say on this. I think you covered no. it. I, it. This is why shark fishing in Florida both get a bad rap.
2: Yes. Because there are some very responsible there shark are fishermen in Florida. There are so many Florida.
4: responsible sharks, and there are so many stewards of the resource and great Anglers in Florida, but you don't hear much about them. You hear about this kind of this, stupidity.
2: This shit, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I'm, I'm I have very good friends down there who do the land based shark fishing thing very responsibly. You know, they leave no footprint, leave no trash. They do it at night. They don't do it on public beaches. But it's it's this kind of stuff that ruins. The reputation, you know, that that shark fishing has left that it's hanging on to. So, we'll see more might develop there. But uh, Justin, I do appreciate that. Um, as promised, man, you sent the news piece and I made it news. So uh, <laughs> we'll see what Phil has to say about all this. See where his heart lies in this whole deal. He's got a tough. And, he's got you know, a tough one
4: to figure out this week. I don't. I don't. He envy does. Phil.
2: He does, he does, and then when we're done with that, we're gonna uh, we're gonna have a tackle hack from our bud Mike Iconelli that will help you stick more walleyes, uh, or perhaps a, a state record.
1: Guys, you called it already.
2: This one was neck and neck, and I think I'm just gonna give the week to Joe because I don't think he's won in a while, and I feel kind of bad for him. So, Joe, you're the winner. <laughs> The walleye is kind of a funny fish, because I don't even think I had heard of a walleye until I met my wife, who is from Minnesota, and to her, the walleye was seemingly the only fish that existed. I mean, this isn't going anywhere. I don't really have a point or a joke here. I just had that one single thought about walleye. How are you guys? You guys doing good? The kid's good? Kid's healthy? Awesome. Glad to hear it.
3: I'm getting
2: hacked it's coming from inside the city
4: At the planet. it's time now for our very irregular and unexpectedly useful segment tackle hacks where we ask talented people for legitimate fishing information instead of peppering them with stupid questions or asking them to make fun of their friends and clients today we have the one and only mike iconelli with us so put down your nintendo switch grab a pen and take some notes mike appreciate you being here again man always a pleasure Thanks, guys. Yeah. So I know you do a lot of this kind of thing on your own channels. Like I don't know. It seems like every time I, I check in there, I, I, you, you have some kind of a tip or suggestion, and I look at it and I, and I wonder, like, damn, why have I never thought of that? You're just you're just a font of fishing info. So, without further ado, please lay a bit of that on us and the listeners.
1: Sure. Yeah. And I I do love it. I've uh, loved this aspect of fishing since I was a kid. You know, you're always trying to find a build a better mousetrap find something that'll catch more fish. There's a lot. I couldn't think of a good one that would be really, really good until I dumbed it down. And I want to give you a real easy one that has put so many more fish in my boat, especially when we're talking about bass fishing with soft plastics. It's a modification that you can make to any brand of hook you're using on your soft plastics You could make the modification on a round bend an extra wide gap, a straight shank, a flipping hook, doesn't matter. So style a hook, um, none of that matters. And the tip's easy. It's bending the point of the hook off of the eye of the hook. It's offsetting the point from the eye of the hook. You know, and and before I was shown this modification, I was losing about 20% of the bites when I fished soft plastics, right? whether it's a, a worm, a soft stick bait, a lizard, a tube, didn't matter. I would lose about 20% of the bites. I'd get the bite, I'd set the hook, I'd come back empty. And, you know, when I started making this modification, it, it changed that ratio. And now I miss very few bites. And it's simple, by, by taking the point of the hook off of the eye, when you have that forward pull pressure, that pull point, and you, and you set the hook, Instead of the point of the hook being straight in line with where you're tying it, it's offset. I like to call it about three degrees. Doesn't have to be perfect. Three degrees set off to the right or left. It doesn't matter if you, you bend left or right. But when you offset it from the eye of the hook and you apply that upward pressure, sideward pressure, it makes that hook go in easier and more of a positive hookup, a positive hook set, right? You get more meat is is what happens. So easiest way to do it is get your pliers, get your needle nose, grab the point of the hook, but not on the point itself, but where the hook bends up to the point, grab it with the needle nose and just turn it left or right three degrees. That simple little modification has put so many more fish in the boat for me. It's won me tournaments. Um, It goes from being, you know, 75% in a day. To ninety-five to hundred percent in a day from hooks to landing hookups to landing fish. So, turn the point off of the eye of the hook when you're fishing soft plastics.
2: It's it's an amazing tip, and it makes it makes me feel like yeah. slightly dumb because as a saltwater guy, I'm very familiar with non all, you know offset hooks for, for offset bait hook fishing. Points, yeah. Yet, do I ever make that tweak when I'm fishing freshwater? No, I have not, and why? See, <laughs> I've done it, but I've never
4: done it with soft plastics, and so. I'm definitely going to start doing that now. That that absolutely makes sense. Why wouldn't that make sense? The offset works. It ups your hook set ratio in so many other places. Why yeah. wouldn't it work here? Yeah. It's,
1: it's a good one. It's helped me catch a lot more fish. And I got to work with VMC. And all of VMC hooks that are Ike-approved have the three-degree offset right out of the pack, which is nice, too.
4: Nice. Well, uh, I'm going to go pick up a pack of those right about now and try that out. I hope you guys will do the same. But – Remember, like Ike was saying, you could just retrofit the hooks you already have. You don't have yep. to buy new stuff. So nope. we love that kind of hack. This is exactly, you know, I, I, we're going to lose our reputation as being a totally useless fishing podcast. <laughs> if we keep doing stuff <laughs> like this. But I very much appreciate you coming on and sharing that little nugget with us. Thanks a lot, Ike.
2: Take care, man. Thanks, guys. Come on, man. We're not a completely useless fishing podcast. Not completely. That was kind of harsh.
4: It was. It was. You're that right. Was but we we let off the show with a story about a guide trip that had no fishing and then reviewed a book by an author who may <laughs> never have fished a day in her life. So while I agree that this podcast is far from useless, I think it's safe to say that our, our insights extend beyond the confines of fishing.
2: Yeah, that's fair. But also, come on, that was a legitimately useful tackle hack. I just yeah. will add one caveat. Okay. if you his, This is a great tip, but if you partake in a fishery that requires circle hooks when hucking bait, just check your regs before you bend them out because sometimes inline in that scenario is the law. Otherwise, killer tip.
4: That's a good call. That's a good call, and it, it's timely because some of those regs are going in now and changing, so yep. heads up on that one for, for those of you fish, circle hooks, and bait. But in most situations, I think we can agree Ike's tackle hack is a good call. Totally. And totally. we are grateful to to him for sharing it, so thanks, Ike. And I believe you were about to give us uh, a suggestion for a particular lure you might use that hack on the next time you go fishing, and also one you consider to be one of your your Hail Mary Try it out baits.
1: Uh, Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert.
2: Are you into blade baits? For as long as I can remember, blade baits are just something I've kind of had kicking around. There's probably one buried under all the jerk baits in one of my jerk bait trays right now. There could be one hanging out with my chatter baits or jigs. Honestly, I can't remember the last time I threw one, because for me, a blade bait has always been a Hail Mary lure. Now, listen, I understand that some of you are upset right now, and I never said a blade bait wasn't productive. I never said it didn't catch fish. I'm well aware of its potency, having interviewed Dozens of guides over the years that practically live and die by the things. But most of them are walleye guys, which I am not, so that's one less use I personally have for blade baits. I'm also fully aware that they crush on ice out smallmouths on many northern lakes, but once again, I don't do much ice out smalley fishing on lakes. Blade baits, like the cicada, blade runner, and steel shad, were simply not staples in the fishing scenes where I grew up, but I always wanted them to be my secret weapon. As they are, after all, elegantly simplistic and definitely classic. To the best of my research, it all started with the Hedden Sonar, which the company introduced in 1959. Blade bait designs vary slightly, but they all share characteristics of the OG Sonar. In essence, the lure is nothing more than a small cigar-shaped hunk of lead with a huge metal shark fin on its back, Viewed from the side, however, these two elements give the lure the profile of a bait fish like a shad. There's a double hook at the tip of the fin, which is technically the tail of the bait, and another double hook hanging under that lead belly. On the central spine of the fin are three to five line tie eyes that slightly alter the lure's action, depending on which one you tie off to. Blade baits are extremely versatile because they can be fished vertically or horizontally, and they were really one of the first subsurface lures that leaned into a fish's attraction to sound and ability to home in on vibration with their lateral lines. Now, no matter how you present a blade bait, it will shimmy back and forth like a rattlesnake's tail. The faster you jig jigger reel, the more pronounced, the ripping, zipping vibrations it emits. This is why blade baits are so potent on the ice and right after ice out because they can be gently finessed around sluggish fish, but it's often that short, abrupt zip off the bottom that gets a frosty, otherwise lock-jawed bass or pike or walleye to take a swing. Knowing all of this about blade baits, I've tried to make them work for me over the years, mostly in some of the deep, dark holes on local smallmouth rivers, and I think another part of the reason why I never have more than one on me is because nine times out of 10, when I do try to properly fish one in those deep, dark holes, I lose it. In my experience, heavy blade baits and rocky rivers don't play very well together. Blade baits, at least my blade baits, have zero ability to deflect off hardcover like a bill or slip between the boulders like a fluke. They just wedge like a doorstop. I break them off and go back to fishing something I have more confidence in. But then, on very rare occasions, a blade bait can do no wrong. For me, that's mostly in high, dirty water situations. It's usually a last-ditch effort, after working through the arsenal and being at my wit's end, that I'll spy that lonely blade bait and say, ah, what the hell. Instead of letting it fall, I just hawk the thing out there a mile and reel it back at lightning speed, and this doesn't work all the time, but I've turned around a few bronzeless days doing this. For the magic to happen, however, I'm convinced I have to rediscover the blade bait every single time. I swear, if I go out and tie it on right away, trying to recreate that success, it fails. I have to go through my entire bag first, at least 10 casts per lure, and then, maybe, the blade can save the day.
4: That's about all we have. In this week's tour through the fishing museum, but we sincerely hope that you enjoyed the still-life portrait Hillary Hutchison painted of a man too smart to know if he's hungry or if he personally <laughs> owns the Bob Marshall <laughs> Wilderness, the postmodern <laughs> film of a lungfish morphing into a black Angus burger, the Greco-Roman statue of Mike Iconelli triumphantly bending fish hooks to his iron will, and a blade bait that's not really on the cutting edge, but you should probably still have a couple.
2: Uh, and if all of that was just a little too strange for you, write us and let us know at bent at the meat eater.com. Also, if you haven't already go to the meat backslash fish and sign up for our fishing weekly newsletter. You'll get an email every Tuesday straight from me, updating you on all the art and science we pour into our fishing shows, articles, and news coverage. Plus I'll write up weekly suggestions on what you should be listening to, watching, and reading. Then over time, I'll start telling you what to wear as well. So you're all just clones of me.
0: It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. You ever get that feeling? The walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.